Turning Tides is an Antics Entertainment affiliate. You can find us on social media at The Turning Tides Podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, and at Turning Tides Pod on Twitter. For more information, or if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast, please contact us at the turning tides podcast at gmail.com thanks for listening warning this episode of turning tides contains depictions of murder rape genocide war violence and racism war began may 23rd 1915 It raged from Trentino on the Swiss-Alpine border all the way to the coast and along the Isonzo River to the Adriatic Sea. The Isonzo River was split along three major fronts of command. The northern area of the Julian Alps was dominated by Mount Rambon and Mount Kern, which both reached dizzying heights of over 6,700 feet and 7,400 feet, respectively. The central and southern areas were each defined by a plateau. The Bainsiza Plateau in the center and the Carso Plateau in the south. John MacDonald and Zelshko Simprik, who authored Caporetto and the Isonzo Campaign, say this northern sector, quote, is now covered with trees, but these mountains had a very different appearance in 1915. From about 3,000 to 4,000 feet, they were sheer walls of stark gray limestone. The war years saw some of the harshest weather that the area has known. Unquote. The central and southern plateaus of Mainziza and Carso were seemingly easy to penetrate. When armies began to launch offensives on this terrain, it quickly became clear how dangerous these lowlands were. Vertical walls of rock were mingled with ravines and uneven terrain. While the Carso, much like Puerto Rico's Magote, was home to numerous underground rivers, caverns, and a surface which left little cover for infantry. When fighting in these areas... Artillery proved a decisive factor, as exploding shells created sharp rock projectiles which were as deadly as a direct hit. Things became more frightening in the winter. Soldiers used artillery shells more and more frequently to manufacture avalanches, while the brutal north wind, the Bora, ripped through poorly clad Italian and Austrian soldiers alike. Villages in the area were evacuated, and eventually they were wiped out completely. One such village was Gorizia, which was destined to become a focal point for the war. Other pivotal battlegrounds would include Segrado, Padgora, and Oslavia. Prior to the war, these small villages were vibrant communities composed of Italian, Slavic, and German peoples, but their lives were thrown into chaos at the start of 1915. Weather 
would prove to be an extreme hindrance for both sides during the war to come. Temperatures could dip to 14 degrees Fahrenheit in midsummer and well below freezing on a daily basis during the winter. In the spring, melting snow coupled with rain transformed the country roads into quagmires while simultaneously overflowing the mountain rivers. This made resupplying units difficult at best and impossible at worst. That being said, logistical units on both sides showed an immense amount of ingenuity and determination. They braved mountain paths no wider than 12 inches in some places. They dealt with falling rocks, enemy fire, and frostbite. Eventually, tens of thousands of lives would be saved by creating pulley systems to send wounded soldiers down the mountain in stretchers. Unfortunately, the difficulty in transporting the wounded proved immense, leading to an incredibly high mortality rate amongst wounded soldiers and medics assigned to them. Oftentimes, bodies were kicked down the mountain as they died. In the winter, their bodies froze. Come spring, these bodies began to thaw and decompose, turning a once scenic alpine valley into a stinking pit of death. This led to further complications as diseases spread. Cholera would soon prove to be as dangerous as enemy fire. In Caporetto and the Isonzo campaign, the authors state that a major factor in this campaign was the fact that, quote, the Italians were always looking up and climbing, while the Austrians were always looking down and waiting, unquote. Italian commander Luigi Cadorna was a no-nonsense military man. He would take over command of the armed forces in 1914 after the unexpected death of the conqueror of Libya, Albert Polio. Cadorna believed in the offensive and an overwhelming force. He wished to crack Austrian defenses somewhere near the Ljubljana Gap. This would open the road to Vienna. Before the war, he rapidly increased the army's size and modernized much of the army's loadout. Cadorna refused to learn his lesson while watching the campaigns in France and Russia throughout 1914. Machine guns, barbed wire, and massed artillery were not at the forefront of Cadorna's thinking. He believed in mass infantry, overwhelming and swamping their targets. In the opening hours of the war, Cadorna hoped he would be able to effectively swamp the handful of Austro-Hungarians defending the Italian border, but this would prove too difficult a task. The first year of war had been disastrous for the Habsburg Empire. By spring of 1915, they had suffered over two million casualties on the East and Serbian fronts. Over a million of these were POWs. Austrian High Command worried this opening of a third front would cause their nation's overstretched military to completely collapse. However, in the wake of Russian advances on the Eastern Front, Austro-Hungarian and German high commands began to act in concert. This had immediate effects, as Russian armies were easily overwhelmed and were retreating headlong into modern-day Belarus. 
the polyglot nation of Austria-Hungary did not have the heart for an advance deep into Russia, but when Italy declared war, the Slavic, Hungarian, and German subjects of the Habsburgs viewed this as traitorous. They rallied to the defense of their western border and showed a fierce zeal in resisting the impending Italian offensives. The Italian army was composed of, mainly, illiterate peasants. In Caporetto and the Isonzo campaign, it stated that these peasants were led by an officer corps which was, quote, a product of the deeply rooted Italian class system, unquote. In a previous episode, we discussed the ways in which the army was used as an example of what it meant to be a unified Italy. Units were composed of soldiers from across Italy, but because of the lack of medical care in the South, most Southern would-be soldiers were not able to pass the exams needed to join up. This created a huge disparity, in which Southern soldiers were often bullied and belittled, while their Northern counterparts were awarded high ranks. This favoritism, which was based in prejudice, lowered the unit's overall effectiveness in the field immensely. Hundreds of thousands of Italians would do all they could to avoid serving in such a military, but in spite of this, over five million men would end up enrolled in the Italian army by the war's end. Further hindering Italian proficiency, non-commissioned officers were in critically short supply, and it wasn't until Cadorna took over in 1914 that the Italian army made serious efforts to correct this. As war began, nearly 900,000 people had been mobilized by Italy. It is a fact that Italian soldiers were treated as badly, if not worse, than all other countries during World War I. It was not until 1917 that these conditions began to improve. They had a ludicrously low number of machine guns in their national stockpile and very few heavy artillery batteries. As the war proceeded, Italian industry was reorganized in order to pump out more and more shells. Gas masks were practically non-existent. In several gas attacks, thousands of Italians would die clutching at their throats, their eyes bleeding. On the Austro-Hungarian side, the empire was racked with nationalist strife and disorganization. Units composed of mostly Slavs would not serve in their home regions. A similar strategy was used with Hungarian and German units. This had the effect of creating widespread anger and desertion in the Austrian ranks. In time, this policy would change, and Slovenes, for example, would be sent back to defend their home regions from Italian encroachment. There were three separate land forces one could join, the Royal Common Army, which defended the entire Austro-Hungarian Empire, the Royal Territorial Force, which defended German areas, and the Royal Hungarian Army, which protected Hungarian-speaking areas. After failures in Serbia and along the Carpathian Mountains, it was expected the Habsburgs would give way easily to the mass of Italian troops fighting against them. King Victor Emmanuel, who had been sovereign of the country since his father's assassination in 1900, 
was in charge of the Italian military forces in name only. He was a rather unimposing character, and his passivity would eventually allow for the rise of fascism in Italy. The king was a family man who lived away from Rome, preferring a small cottage in the country. He enjoyed his wife's Montenegrin cooking much more than state affairs, as he was an awkward and nervous person. In spite of this, he was called the Soldier King by Italian media, as his upbringing had been incredibly militaristic. Luigi Cadorna was the man who was actually in charge. In Caporetto and the Isonzo campaign, it stated that Cadorna was an, quote, arrogant man. He rarely listened to other opinions, unquote. A handful of mediocre officers, who were a hodgepodge of royalty, nobility, and Italian military school graduates, served under Cadorna. On the Austro-Hungarian side, the ancient Franz Joseph was in nominal command until his death in 1916. Following his death, Karl I became the last Habsburg emperor. He was a military commander on the Isonzo front before ascending to the throne. At heart, however, he was a liberal who believed in modernizing and reforming the Austrian state. He made repeated overtures to the Entente toward a favorable and separate Austrian peace. In reality, the army was commanded by Archduke Eugene, who was one of the more capable commanders during the war. Konrad von Hotzendorf, chief of staff, is largely responsible for Austrian preparedness along the Italian front and was one of the few Austrians advocating war on the side of Turkey in the Italo-Ottoman conflict of 1911. The Austrian Fifth Army was led by one of the most skilled commanders of whom you've likely never heard. Svetovar Borovic von Bojna was born in modern-day Croatia, but he largely refuted his Croatian roots, preferring the German language and culture of the high court. He felt nationalism was a poison, which was destroying his beloved empire. In the face of 11 Italian advances, he led repeated defenses and counterattacks while losing relatively little ground. He believed in defending every inch of ground and quickly counterattacking to gain back ground he had lost. Another major factor in the outcome of this campaign was German involvement. They would take point in operations in 1917, which would come very close to taking Italy out of the war entirely. They had several commanders on the ground who were famous in their time. Otto von Bello was overall commander, and he was a proven asset in German battles, which ranged theaters. He skillfully used the tactics of a fellow German general, Oscar von Houtier. Houtier tactics were defined by R. Ernest and Trevor N. Dupuis as a, quote, short, sharp concentration of fire, which was followed immediately by infantry assaults. Both guns and troops were brought into position at the last possible moment to ensure surprise. Heavy concentrations of gas and smoke shells massed known enemy strongpoints, while infiltrating elements, infantry and light guns, bypassed them, unquote. These tactics were first used by Houtier at the Battle of Riga, in which he sent the Russian 12th Army fleeing in abject terror and confusion. 
In May of 1915, Italian units pounced on as much Austrian territory as they possibly could. At first, Italy could only call forth a meager seven divisions as their mobilization was poorly planned and executed. In the face of Italian advances, Austrians slowly withdrew to pre-planned positions. In the north, the Italian Second Army captured the small town of Coberid, which it promptly renamed Caporetto. In response, beleaguered Austria dispatched seven elite mountain units from the Serbian and Galician fronts. These men were hastily reorganized into the Austrian Fifth Army. They were instrumental in preventing an early Italian breakthrough. In the north and south, slow progress was made along the Misril Mountains and the Carso Plateau. In the center, the town of Plava was the base of operations for Italian offensives. They were attempting to take a nondescript hill called Hill 383. By war's end, the hill had a new name, the Hill of Death. This hill would change hands several times, but ultimately remain in Austrian hands. This initial jump provided few benefits besides the capture of the massive Mount Kern. The fight for the peak was extremely bitter. After an early morning Italian assault, which devolved into hand-to-hand combat, the Italian army was finally in control. Either way, it was not the stroll to Vienna Italian politicians had hoped it would be. What history remembers as the First Battle of the Isonzo began on June 23, 1915, with a week-long Italian bombardment. The plan was straightforward, tenderize the Austrians and then mop up what was left. However, in the General Bedlam, which was the initial Italian bombardment, Austrian defenders quickly settled down into the nooks and crannies of their positions. Following the bombardment, Italian infantry ascended to Austrian positions, sure that nothing could have survived such devastation. Unfortunately for Italian soldiers, Austrian machine guns met their advances and devastated them repeatedly. The Italians had no fixed position on which to concentrate and this led to them being destroyed in detail. The fiercest fighting ranged around Gorizia, which had remained in Austrian hands. This crucial stopgap needed to be captured before Italians could move to threaten the vital port of Trieste. A former engineer's division held this vital spot, and he endeavored to turn his position into a fortress constructing five lines of trenches which were adorned with barbed wire. Under these prepared defenses, Italian attacks were repeatedly rebuffed. The First Battle of the Isonzo petered out on July 7th, as Cadorna called a halt to offensive operations. Every Italian objective was still in Austrian hands, and Italy lost at least 13,000 men. Austrian forces lost at least 10,000. Cadorna had tested the Austrian defenses, but he had learned nothing tactically, and the second battle was about to begin. Cadorna had changed little about his offensive strategy, but he made a point to demand his men and officers execute his orders to the letter. Some things did change. Initial Italian bombardment of enemy positions was heavier, 
and more heavy artillery was brought to bear. Once more, the offensive would be launched along the entire front, instead of along a single strategic objective. Once more, Austrian forces were slaughtered in the initial Italian bombardment, but many survived. Along the Carso, mass attacks were hurled towards sturdy Austrian defensive positions. Borovich's men bent, but they did not break. In Caporetto and the Isonzo campaign, the authors describe the battle thus, quote, Densely packed Italian infantry arose from each point and charged uphill with fixed bayonets. The surviving enemy machine guns cut swathes through the advancing Italians, but the brave infantry still went forward. The lines in each sector were much the same as before, but the casualties were immense, unquote. On July 19th, Italians managed to capture Mount Saint-Michel, only to lose the peak to determined Austrian counterattacks. On July 25th, Cadorna was sure the Austrian defenses were about to snap, and he ordered a renewed offensive. They captured Mount Saint-Michel, but another Austrian attack uprooted Italian defenders. Official losses are recorded at nearly 50,000 Italians and over 45,000 Austrians. The death toll during the second battle would have continued to rise were it not for Italians running out of ammunition for their artillery. The embarrassment caused by this led to a massive readjustment of Italian industry. All aspects of Italian society were now being mobilized to support the war. Italy would not run out of ammunition again, but they would have to deal with acute food shortage issues. The third battle of the Isonzo would not occur until the fall of 1915. Cadorna had learned some things. He finally understood the importance of massed, accurate artillery fire, as well as the necessity for artillery to support the infantry during the battle. The Italian infantry was re-equipped with trench mortars, machine guns, and hand grenades, while special sapper units were created to deal with enemy barbed wire emplacements. Additionally, steel helmets were introduced, which severely depleted the number of head wounds. Austrian units would not be equipped in a similar style until the autumn of 1916. Cadorna's third battle would focus on several points, including Gorizia. He amassed 1,372 artillery pieces for his purposes, and they proved devastating against Austrian positions. During the first day of bombardment, 5,000 Austro-Hungarian defenders were decimated. This fire continued for another 70 hours. Even then, some defenders remained alive. They remained breathing thanks to the incredibly hard and thankless work of Austrian engineers, who had spent the season improving fortifications. For two hours, the Italians leisurely collected themselves as the bombardment petered out. The Austrians, who were hiding in their holes, emerged to devastate the Italian infantry. Along the Mersel Ridge, Austrian troops rolled flaming barrels down on the Italian positions, causing mayhem and disorganization. Much the same results were tallied around Hill 383 and along the Carso. 
where the Austrian Iron Corps resisted the attacks of five Italian divisions. Cadorna was furious. Where was his triumphant victory? He demanded more resolute action from his men on the ground. Hope now rested on the attack against Gorizia. The Italians nearly snapped Austrian resistance, but in the end, they were unsuccessful. Once more, Austrian defenders held out in the face of continuous assaults. The third battle had come to a grinding end. Italian troops suffered 68,000 casualties, while Austrian troops suffered 42,000. The fourth battle began hard on the heels of the third, and it's fair to say it was a virtual replay of the third battle in terms of tactics and objectives. The only difference lay in the weather. The third battle was fought in intense fog and rain. The fourth would be fought in sub-zero temperatures and snow. The heavy snow proved pivotal for inhibiting Italian offensive designs. In Caporetto in the Isonzo campaign, it is stated, quote, over and over again the attacks failed or minor gains were quickly reversed by Austro-Hungarian counterattacks, unquote. The only victory the Italians could claim was their capture of the ruined town of Oslavia. When snow descended once more on Italian and Austrian positions, the fourth battle was called to a halt. Official figures claim 50,000 Italian and 30,000 Austro-Hungarians were killed, wounded, or captured. As 1915 drew to a close, the Entente leaders met at Chantilly to discuss the war strategy. All agreed to launch concurrent offensives with the spring melt. The Central Powers were strategizing as well. Austrian leadership was seeking German help in an offensive aimed at the Trentino region. Hotzendorf believed he could split Italy down the center, forcing the country out of the war. The Germans, however, had their own plan for defeating the Allies. They wished to draw the French army into a kill zone around the city of Verdun, in the hopes of bleeding the French into a surrender. Along the Isonzo, Borovich was putting the finishing touches on an offensive designed to recapture the small hamlet of Oslavia. This counterattack was so successful that Borovich managed to entangle over a thousand Italian POWs in the army's web as the town fell. This loss did not seem to bother Cadorna, who was planning another massive offensive. The weather stymied Cadorna's efforts further as it was completely uncooperative with Italian designs. Rain, snow, and fog all colluded against an accurate Italian barrage. Compared to the previous battles, Italy's pre-assault bombardment during the fifth battle was relatively useless against Austrian defenders. Thankfully, the engagement ended quickly but it still claimed 1,600 Italian casualties and approximately 500 Austro-Hungarian casualties. Before the sixth battle could begin, the Austrian offensive exploded in Trentino. 1,000 artillery pieces wrecked poorly constructed Italian fortifications, while elite mountain units from the Austrian army made rapid progress into Italy. The promised cleaving of Italy was not to be. 
Cadorna reacted quickly to the attacks, and he replaced the incompetent Italian commander. Additionally, the Brusilov offensive was making incredible progress in Galicia. The Russian giant was lumbering into action for one of the first times during the war. Italian units stalled Austrians along the Asiago Plateau, and the line was stabilized once more. Back on the Isonzo front, one of the deadliest weapons had been unleashed. Prior to this battle, gas had not been used in this theater, as unpredictable weather and wind currents could cause suffering to your own troops. The conditions in early June were such that Bordovich and his artillerymen deemed a gas attack likely to work. It killed ruthlessly. 6,900 Italians suffocated on the phosphine gas which saturated their positions. The Austrians were in no position to follow up on this attack, having used vast resources to stem the tide in the east and in their doomed Trentino offensive. In July, Cadorna was looking like a new man. He had succeeded in preventing an Austrian breakthrough, quickly deployed his forces back to the Isonzo, and even <gasps> changed his tactics for the coming offensive. He chose a single objective, the town of Gorizia. Against Gorizia, he would launch the majority of his artillery and infantry. One of the corps commanders was Pietro Badoglio, who would soon become the head of the Italian army under Mussolini and later Italian prime minister. On May 4th, the attack began with another new tactic, a feint. This was designed to draw in Austrian forces. On August 6th, a 900-gun bombardment crashed around Gorizia. It destroyed much of the fortifications, and it killed many defenders. The accuracy and propensity of the fire was thanks in large part to Pietro Badoglio's administrative abilities. Following the capture of Mount Sabotino, fresh men were brought in to replenish the Italian lines. This allowed those who had just stormed the mountain to have time to rest. They kept up the fight until they reached the western bank of the Isonzo River and entered the town of Gorizia. All along the line, Austrians were faltering in the face of determined Italian thrusts. The mountains and hills, which had previously taken the lives of 100,000, were now conquered relatively easily. The authors of Caporetto in the Isonzo campaign state, quote, 6th August 1916 was one of the greatest days in Italian military history, unquote. Of the 18,000 Austro-Hungarian troops which defended Gorizia, only 5,000 managed to stagger back to their secondary lines. The biggest missed opportunity of the day was in the north, with the failure to capture Hill 383. This hill created a dangerous bulge in the Italian line, which could be used to launch an Austro-Hungarian offensive. As their original lines crumbled, Austro-Hungarian units were given time to set up new defenses. If the Italian high command was compelled into action, the road to Vienna may well have been opened. As it stood, Cadorna became fearful of his command's position. Additionally, the Duke of Aosta was scheduled to ride his horse through the battered town, so obviously an offensive could not be launched. 
Italian losses are listed anywhere between 50,000 and 100,000 casualties, while the Austrians lost at least 50,000, 5,000 of whom were made prisoner. This so-called great Italian victory sowed the seeds for a much larger Italian defeat in the near future. The Sixth Battle was a shock to the Austrian High Command. They felt it was no longer feasible to allow Bordovich to be hamstrung with few men and little artillery. All efforts were made to reinforce Bordovich's battered Fifth Army. By mid-1916, the war seemed to be nearing its climactic end. Romania had just joined the Allied side, and it was hoped that their entrance into the conflict would swiftly destroy the Austrians' will to continue fighting. This proved to be an incorrect assumption on the part of the Entente powers, as Romania's army was destroyed and the country was occupied relatively easily. Regardless, Cadorna believed he needed only to kick in the door to end Austrian resistance. The Italian war machine was now pumping out artillery, automobiles, and airplanes at a prodigious rate. It was early September when the Seventh Battle of Diazanzo began with the objective of overwhelming Austrian defenders on the Carso Plateau. Unfortunately, the Seventh Battle was marred by bad weather, which prevented effective reconnaissance of Austrian positions. In lightning, wind, and rain, Italian and Habsburg soldiers grappled in the trenches for command of the inhospitable plain. Deaths from lightning strikes were not uncommon in such conditions. On the peaks of the Julian Alps, Bosnians, led by a Czech officer, fiercely fought to maintain their position on Mount Rambone. They threw Italians back to their defenses with accurate counter-battery fire. Historically, these battles have been separated along arbitrary lines. In reality, for the soldiers on the ground, the war was one long fight. Between operations, the killing and maiming never stopped. It simply lessened. There were moments of boredom and even levity, but on the whole, what the average soldier felt most was a deep sense of uncertainty and despair. Few letters home contained the zealous nationalism for which D'Annunzio and Mussolini boasted Italy was fighting. Most spoke of dread over the next offensive, or a melancholy longing for home and family. Cadorna would chisel away at the Austrian wall once more, preparing a two-pronged offensive which he hoped would end Austrian resistance on the Carso and along the Vipava River. On September 30th, the bombardment began and it would last an entire week. It would start up again on October 7th and would rain hell on everything for another 48 hours. Probing attacks began October 9th and on the 10th, the order was given to ascend on Austrian positions. Ukrainian and Romanian defenders were flying headlong for shelter as Italians poured out of Gorizia. Over the next two days, however, Austrian defenses stiffened and repeated counterattacks regained much lost Austrian territory. The front was largely saved by a single determined lieutenant. Theodor Vank was with his company in reserve, and he saw the forward units of the army falling back. He was determined to regain the lost position. 
he ordered his men forward, and other units followed his example, preventing an Austro-Hungarian collapse. The next several days were characterized by vicious, pointless fighting, with little gain on either side. Italian losses were at least 60,000, while Austrian losses were nearly 40,000. Cadorna still believed victory was in his sights, as he reached feebly for the gold ring over the bodies of hundreds of thousands of his fellow Italians. As the battle screeched to a halt, Austrian engineers went to work. The fortifications destroyed in the previous battle were rebuilt, and those still intact were expanded upon. Nameless hills became killing fields due to the work of these engineers. On October 25, 1916, 1,400 artillery pieces began a stupendous bombardment. This cacophony of violence rang forth the start of the Ninth Battle. This was another of Cadorna's final pushes. On the other side, Borovich was exceedingly worried. He knew his men's morale would not be able to cope with another Italian breakthrough. On the morning of Halloween, the attack order was given and the Eighth Battle was basically rerun. It was as ferocious as the previous battle, and both sides fought with reckless abandon over the unwieldy terrain. In Caporetto and the Isonzo campaign, they state, quote, 12,000 infantry assaulted the Austrian 41st Regiment on a very narrow front of less than a quarter of a mile. Austrian machine guns hurled a deadly fire against the attacker. All day long, the battle raged." Unquote. During both the Eighth and Ninth Battles, more Austrians were surrendering than ever before. The Duke of Aosta's 45th Division captured nearly 2,000 men. By the end of November 3rd, Austrian leadership was staring defeat square in the face. They had a single battalion of infantry in their reserves. This was the 4th Battalion of the 61st Regiment. It was representative of the entire Habsburg Empire, as it was composed of Romanians, Germans, Magyars, and Serbs. Captain Peter Ruz was in command. He led his battalion in a vicious counterattack against the force six times the size of his own. The battle was so chaotic and violent that stones from the ground were used as weapons, as the Carso was covered in human blood. This zealous charge held the Austrian line, but only by the narrowest of margins. Italian losses were at least 37,000, while Austrian losses were at least 29,000. Both sides hunkered down for a long winter full of trials. On November 21st, Franz Joseph passed away. He had reigned as the sovereign of the empire since 1848 and his loss was a deep blow to Austrian cohesion and morale. The Allies, meanwhile, were meeting in Rome attempting to agree to a unified strategy. Cadorna put forward a bold plan. If the British provided enough artillery and divisions to the Italian army, he could knock Austria-Hungary out of the war. The new British Prime Minister, Lloyd George, was horrified at the staggering losses on the Western Front, and he heartily agreed with the Italian plan but his generals balked. They considered any diversion of resources and men from the Western Front to be a dangerous one. After the killing fields of Gallipoli, Allied High Command 
seemed to have little enthusiasm for supporting another front of war. Italian morale during the winter did not improve. Many were absolutely horrified that the slaughter was about to begin once the thaw set in. In March, several units mutinied, and in response, Cadorna brought back an ancient Roman tradition. The units who mutinied and any further units who disobeyed orders would be decimated. Decimation of a unit was defined by an officer lining his men up and shooting every tenth man. This disgusting practice was even levied against units which did not advance enough. It was presumed that because Cadorna was a very stable military genius, the men were being cowardly for not achieving their objectives. Not only is this practice horrific, it is also counterintuitive, a drain on manpower, and counterproductive to raising morale. On the Italian home front, there were countless demonstrations and strikes against the war. In Austro-Hungary, the mood was even more downcast. The empire was nearing three million battle casualties, and the Allied blockade of Germany and Austria were causing serious food shortages. Russia was descending into virtual anarchy, which required all offensive operations to come to a halt so the army could deal with internal unrest. With Russia virtually out of the war, Austria could focus solely on the Isonzo front, which was heavily reinforced. At the start of 1917, the new emperor, Karl I, officially replaced von Hotzendorf with Ars von Straussenberg. Hotzendorf was too prideful to accept a subservient role to Germany. Straussenberg had no such misgivings and was already close to German high command. As May began, the Tenth Battle loomed large for the men on the ground. Italian forces had been greatly reinforced. They could bring 430 battalions to bear, as well as over 2,200 artillery pieces. The Austrians were able to reinforce as well. They were still greatly outnumbered, but their men were rested and ready to defend their mountain strongholds. The plan for the Tenth Battle was relatively simple. Cadorna would attack in the north, in the hopes that it would draw Austrian reserves in that direction. While this occurred, attacks would be made in the south, in the hopes of crashing across the Carso and into Trieste. The Italians had been re-equipping this whole time, and their new uniforms camouflaged their troops much more effectively. They were also helped along by April weather, which hid many of their movements. On May 12th, 3,000 artillery pieces opened fire. They were aided by British artillery who were on loan. Then the infantry swept forward. They crashed into Austrian positions. Italian infantry were pushing through the Hill of Death and moving onto the village of Zagora. The Serb and Croatian defenders held the town to the last man. Across the line, Austrians maintained a tenuous grip on several peaks and villages. Losses for Austria were at least 80,000, while the Italian army lost 159,000. Of these, 24,000 were prisoners. 
this was a staggering number of prisoners for an attacking force. The fact that there were so many prisoners demonstrates that the resolve of Italian peasant soldiers was wearing incredibly thin. Italian desertion numbers were also on the rise. 650 deserters a month had been the standard. Now the rate had increased to over 5,000 a month during the summer of 1917. These numbers were helped along by the Pope, who officially protested against the war. In Trentino, an abortive offensive was attempted in order to bring a much-needed victory to the Italian side. Unfortunately, they were met with a stalemate from the uncompromising Iron Corps, who held their mountain positions against repeated assaults from the elite Alpini. That same summer, the Arditi, or Daring Ones, were launched. These were the Italian equivalent of the Austrian Sturmtruppen, or Stormtroopers. They were both elite shock infantry, designed for deep infiltration. The authors of Caporetto and the Isonzo campaign say that Arditi units were composed of, quote, the fittest and most aggressive, unquote. They were in the most dangerous position on assaults, but they received higher pay and more downtime. Prior to battle, they were roused by their officers with the following question, quote, who will always be given the glory and the joy of daring the impossible? Unquote. The men would respond, annoy, or to us. Cadorna was falling victim to wishful thinking, as well as reverting to old tactics. During the 11th battle, he would focus his efforts along the entire front and engage the enemy at all points. Additionally, his artillery would not be massed but used along the same broad front. For this attack, 5,200 pieces of artillery were brought to bear. Along the Bainciza Plateau, the Italians had made numerous fruitless pushes. General Enrico Caviglia was determined to break this important sector. He would do so at a section of the river which was the least defended because the terrain was deemed impassable. Facing Caviglia's corps was the disheartened 21st Czech Rifles. They had been trounced by Serbian and then Russian units in separate theaters before being transferred to the Isonzo front. They were in for a rude welcome, to say the least. Before the main offensive began, Italian airplanes were making incredible leaps and bounds in their bombing campaigns. In one such bombing run, Austria's artillery ammunition dump was completely blown by Italian bombers. This would end up severely hampering effective Austrian counter-battery fire. In spite of the broad front on which Cadorno was attacking, his 5,200 pieces were exacting their toll. Every single Austrian position was demolished or severely damaged the Czech rifles were pounced on and forced to retreat in disorder. The long-fabled Italian breakthrough had come. Recounting from Caporetto and the Isonzo campaign, quote, Bersaglieri were pouring into the gap in the Austro-Hungarian lines. Everywhere else, dogged Austro-Hungarian resistance was succeeding. 
the whole front was bogged down in a terrible war of attrition, unquote. The Czech rifles were surrounded and destroyed. The gap in the Austrian lines was now a giant hole, but at that moment the Italian high command hesitated. They feared being flanked and so rested on their laurels. The Italian artillery fire was taking its toll. A mile-wide gap ripped through the Austrian line. All Cadorna had to do was seize the moment. But at the end of the day, he relied on bluster, fear and bravado to achieve his ends, rather than decisive leadership and tangible results. It was the height of folly, and his delay allowed the Austrians to pull back from the Bainciza Plateau in relatively good order. They soon established new defensive lines around Mount Saint-Gabriel. This final battle of the Isonzo was also the most brutal. Italian losses were near 200,000, while Austrian losses were at least 100,000. It was mass slaughter on a never-before-seen scale, and it could not continue. Something had to give. Following the catastrophe of the 11th battle, Cadorna suspended offensive operations until 1918. This was done because even the seemingly endless pools of Italian peasant recruits were running dry. Borovic was desperate for help as well. His men had performed superhuman feats, but there was only so much that so few could do against so many. His empire was simply unable to assist him. The industrial capacity of Austria-Hungary was faltering badly and unable to cope with such serious demands. The Austrian high command turned to Germany for help. Both central powers had devised a way to destroy most of the Italian army. Dubbed Operation Brothers in Arms, the combined German and Austrian armies were able to come together following the Soviet Revolution in Russia which freed up hundreds of thousands of men for the Western and Isonzo fronts. These soldiers and their officers brought the principles of movement and maneuver to an otherwise stagnant war front. Kedorna had known of German cooperation with Austria. He ordered his army commanders to strengthen their fortifications and prepare for the coming attack. The Duke of Eosta needed little convincing. Luigi Capello, on the other hand, was raring to attack, yet he had done basically nothing to prepare his men for the coming Austrian offensive. In spite of this, Italians still vastly outnumbered the Austro-Hungarian forces arrayed against them. However, at the key points in the battle, German and Austrian troops were overwhelmingly superior. German forces would use the small village of Caporetto to act as a fulcrum for their pincer movement. Once this town was taken, Borovic would assault across the Carso, shutting the door on Italian maneuvering. On October 24, 1917, using a thick fog as cover, German and Austro-Hungarian units began an intense bombardment of Italian positions. This bombardment included poison gas and high explosives. In their exposed positions, Capello's second army was tenderized and many died from poison gas. 
Thousands of Italians were throwing their arms up in surrender as assault infantry came up on the trenches. Behind the Italian lines, military police were used to bar the way of fleeing Italian soldiers. They were expected to turn their countrymen back toward the fighting at rifle point. By 4 p.m., Caporetto was in German and Austrian hands. At the same time, Erwin Rommel was leading a detachment of fast-moving Germans deep behind Italian lines. His small unit captured 9,000 Italians and 81 guns, illustrating the complete breakdown of the Italian Second Army. With Italians capitulating everywhere, the road to Vienna was looking a lot more like the road to Venice. Von Bello's Germans were sweeping across the Venetian plain like the Mongols of the 13th century. Very rapidly, they crossed the Tagliamento River and were finally held up at the Piave River. The Battle of Caporetto was an unmitigated disaster for the Italians. Cadorna took no responsibility for his failure to take the warnings he received seriously. Instead, he blamed the soldiers who were gassed, stabbed, and shot. He would finally be removed from his post by royal decree after refusing to resign. In my opinion, it was four years too late. Many believed he should be replaced by the Duke of Aosta, who had managed a fighting retreat to the Piave River with his largely intact Third Army. Instead, the king turned to General Armando Diaz, a southern Italian of Spanish descent, and to Prime Minister Victor Orlando, another southerner and a college professor, to save the country. In all, during the Battle of Caporetto, 280,000 Italians were captured, 350,000 deserted, 30,000 were wounded, and 10,000 were killed. Added to this total should be 400,000 Italian refugees, as well as 30,000 dead Italian civilians killed in reprisals by Austrian occupiers. All in all, this equates to over one million Italian casualties. Armando Diaz and Vittorio Orlando could not have been more different from the men who preceded them. Diaz was a corps commander on the Isonzo front and was one of the few to gain ground on the Carso in repeated attacks. He was most concerned with the welfare of his men and keeping casualties to a minimum. He had fought in Libya and witnessed firsthand the callousness of Italian commanders. To hold the Piave line, he instituted radical changes to the condition of the army and its men. Summary executions and decimations were banned. Troop rations were improved, pay was increased, and a zeal to hold the invader from entering Italy overtook all of society. Socialists were now on the side of fighting if it meant preventing an invasion of the Italian homeland. For one of the first times in history, Italy was truly united in a singular goal. The Piave line was held by the 1st, 3rd, and 4th armies. These forces were bolstered by troops still on leave from minor wounds and illness. The recently promoted Field Marshal Borovic was determined to cross the Piave, but in repeated attacks his troops were hurled back by Italian resistance. Unfortunately for Austria-Hungary, 
The massive amount of land they conquered put an immense strain on their supply system. They had no way to keep their offensive going, and the Piave River proved to be impassable. The cracks on the surface of Austrian victory began to give way and burst. Of the eight million Austria had conscripted, four million were casualties. Uprisings were spiraling into full-blown revolutions in Vienna and Budapest. On the Piave, the Italians settled down to reorganize for the winter. Diaz appointed General Badoglio as his chief of staff, and they both endeavored to turn the massive armies they currently boasted into smaller, more efficient forces. These smaller armies were to have better communication and more cooperation with artillery. On the Austrian side, command was split between Borovich, largely covering the Piave River, and Hotzendorf, who was giving command of the Trentino and Asiago fronts. This split in command would prove decisive in the defeat of Austrian forces. On the Allied side, in the hopes of pushing Austria out of the Veneto, Italy would be receiving support from French and British artillery. America joined the conflict in late 1917, and Borovich was now under no illusions. He believed that the war would end in eventual German defeat. This belief led him to initiate few offensives, as he wished to preserve his army for the chaos which would ensue after peace was made. In spite of his personal beliefs, Karl I had pledged an Austrian offensive against the Piave. Austrian aircraft made bombing sorties against Venice, Treviso, and Padua, but many of the aircraft were destroyed. Borovich would attempt to emulate von Bello's decisive blow at Caporetto. The preliminary bombardment was effective, and Austrian units were a mile deep across the Piave in some places. However, Italian resistance was ferocious, and machine gun fire steadily destroyed the Austrian army. After several days of ineffectual fighting, the offensive on the Piave petered out. At the same time, along the Asiago Plateau, Hotzendorf began an offensive against rough terrain. Sturmtruppen units plunged deep into Italian territory, following a preliminary bombardment which had caught the Italians off guard. These Sturmtruppen were ambushed by hidden British artillery, which laid a deadly flanking fire. Before long, the Austrians' morale was shattered, and they were flung back across the Piave. Diaz could have countered and shattered Austrian resistance, but he feared, quote, another Caporetto, unquote. This deeply frustrated the other allies who were pushing for a final offensive with the peace looming. On October 4, 1918, Austria officially supported President Woodrow Wilson's calls for peace. This rattled Italian politicians who realized they would have little negotiating room as zero of their objectives had been achieved. On October 23rd, the Italians launched their surprise offensive against the river island of Padapoli. The next day, the bombardment began, and Italian troops swarmed over the Piave into the Veneto region. They would not let up their advance until they reached the small town of Vittorio Veneto, after which the battle is named. Italian losses were around 30,000. Austrian resistance had collapsed, and they lost over 500,000 men, 
most of whom were made prisoner or deserted. This victory effectively split the haggard Austrian army, and on November 3, 1918, the Great War came to an official end. It's estimated more than 1.3 million Italians were killed in the fighting. This was over 3% of the entire Italian population at the time. The quote-unquote peace which would reign would be anything but peaceful for Italy. D'Annunzio and Mussolini had both been participants in the Great War in different respects. D'Annunzio was a publicity hound. He launched numerous air raids against Austrian cities. He launched numerous air raids against Austrian cities, one of which dropped only leaflets detailing Italian heroism. Mussolini was nearly killed by typhoid fever, but he continued to serve transferring to the Arditi, where he was severely wounded in a grenade training blast. He would spend the rest of the war recovering in hospital and never saw combat beyond that. Other future fascist leaders were active participants in the war as well. Filippo Marinetti wrote of his time during the war with glee. He loved the, quote, sounds of death and the thrill of killing, unquote. Christopher Duggan says that Marinetti, quote, relished the strong emotions, not least erotic, that accompanied the violence and danger, unquote. Antonio Salandra, the man who brought Italy into the war, was ecstatic when victory was claimed. He said, quote, We are the spokesmen and delegates of the martyrs, of all those who loved this Italy. It is immortal Italy that has awoken, wreathed in her glories and her sorrows, wishing to reconquer her throne. To her, who has been received into the heavens of history amid the purest emanations of blood of her best sons. To her we swear, long live Italy, forever and above all else, long live Italy. Unquote. Italy's economy had taken a massive hit due to the war. Yearly imports, which stood at 3 billion lire in 1914, had skyrocketed to over 14 billion by the end of the war. Meanwhile, state expenditures were in complete disarray. The war cost the Italian state 148 billion lire, which was twice the sum of money the Italian state had spent from 1861 to 1913. However, some sectors of the country and Italian society profited greatly from the war. Fiat's net worth shot up and industry in northern cities grew tremendously. However, no such industrialization was witnessed in the south or center of Italy, where life remained stagnant and agricultural. Here, returning soldiers who were fed up with rank poverty would occupy thousands of acres of unused private land. Authorities could do little to stop them as law and order was breaking down all across the nation. As the great powers met for peace negotiations, much was expected for Italy. Not just the promised lands of Trentino, Istria, and the Dalmatian coast, but also parts of Albania and the new state of Yugoslavia. Very rapidly... The Austrian menace was replaced with a Slavic one. 
This was two-faced on Italy's part. In 1918, Rome had played host to a pan-Slavic congress which promoted Slavic unity and mutual Italian support. But Italy had since changed its tune drastically. The old pre-war camps of neutralists and interventionists took new sides in the peace. The former wanted to renounce these Balkan claims to the land, while the latter wished to have them in full. The socialists, meanwhile, were as intransigent as ever, and they were more outwardly violent in their rhetoric. Peace talks continued with each major nation weighing in on what should be done in the Balkans. Many supported Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, one of which proposed to set boundaries in Italy along ethnic borders. Wilson was angered by Italian requests for more land. He said that if Italy wanted land in which Italians lived and spoke their own language, would Italy like to annex Manhattan, where 600,000 Italians lived and worked? In spite of this, Wilson gave way to Italian demands on the northern frontier. This area included numerous German speakers. Wilson, however, refused to budge on the Balkans. Italy would have to deal with the land it was already pledged. At this, D'Annunzio claimed, quote, Dalmatia belongs to Italy by divine right, as well as human law. By the grace of God, who has designed the earth in such a way that every race can recognize its destiny therein carved out. It was ours and shall be ours again. No Croat caring nothing for history or falsifying it. Not even the Turk, disguised as an Albanian. No one shall ever hold up the rhythm of fate, the Roman rhythm, unquote. Besides the Dalmatian coast, Italian nationalists now wanted the port of Fiume, modern-day Dzeka in Croatia. Italians claimed this port would threaten Italy's position in the Adriatic, while also asserting a majority of the city's population was Italian. French diplomats would hear nothing of it, as they wanted a strong Yugoslav nation as a bulwark against any new German threat. In response, Christopher Duggan says, quote, The Italian government did all it could to weaken Yugoslavia, sanctioning plans to foment civil war there by sending agent provocateurs, and even encouraging Italian soldiers to heighten tensions by seducing local women. Unquote. Italian nationalists were in the streets rioting and attempting to stop what they called a, quote, mutilated victory, unquote. Orlando was desperate, and on Easter Sunday, after hours of arguing, he broke down in front of foreign diplomats. He claimed the secret society was employed to assassinate him if he did not deliver. By June, he was forced out as prime minister, and his replacement would bow to French and British demands while also proclaiming Fayoum to be a neutral city in the care of the newly formed League of Nations. Italy, unfortunately, was not satisfied with the land they received in the peace and began plotting to take parts of Asia Minor. They sent several detachments of troops to Turkey in the hopes of annexing Smyrna on the Anatolian mainland. 
Italy was even planning to proclaim a protectorate over Georgia or another principality in the Caucasus. Both of these plans never came to fruition, and Italy had to content itself with its capture of the Dodecanese Islands being recognized by the new Turkish state. In total, the Italian mainland was extended by almost 9,000 square miles. In terms of European land gains, no other country was granted as much as Italy, but it was still considered not enough. In reality, what Italy truly needed was not more territory, but better financial practices. Throughout the war, they asked for little in this realm from their allies, and the results speak for themselves. Allied imports kept Italian industry afloat. Allied grain fed Italians, and Allied credit kept the lire from collapsing. Peace brought these concessions to an end, throttling Italy into chaos during 1919. Brigandage took hold once more, and inflation crippled the small Italian middle class. In March, a group of 200 radicals of various disciplines met in Milan. They called themselves fascists. This movement was, at first, left-wing and called for an 80% tax on war profits. During that year's elections, however, the group polled an abysmal 5,000 votes. Benito Mussolini, the fascist leader, endeavored to retool this ragtag group of malcontents into a violent, nationalistic machine. Alongside this early fascist movement, a new political force was entering the Italian debate. The Popolari, or Christian Democrats, came into being in January of 1919. They were a moderate left-wing party on all issues that did not include the church. When the church became embroiled in the debate, Popolari became downright reactionary. In 1919, this brand of politics clearly appealed to Italian voters, and this new party won a staggering 100 seats in Parliament. Alongside them, Giolotti was back with his center-left party. Instead of allying with the Popolari against fascism, Giolotti allied with fascism against the Popolari. Socialism, meanwhile, was becoming a haven for the discontented. In 1919, the Socialist Parties of Italy won control of 156 seats of Parliament, granting them a majority. Italian socialists preferred fighting duels amongst themselves over trivial disputes in their rhetoric, rather than fighting for the working man that they claimed to represent. Dennis Mack Smith says of Italian socialism, quote, It continued full of sound and fury, signifying very little, unquote. Minor uprisings would occur throughout 1919, but these were usually crushed by antagonized bosses and landlords who found willing bands of mercenaries in the millions of soldiers who had returned from the war. D'Annunzio continued his nationalist tirades against the quote-unquote mutilated peace of Versailles. He called the U.S. president, Woodrow Wilson, a quote, Croatified Quaker, unquote. Throughout the summer, D'Annunzio had been in talk with right-wing groups planning a violent occupation of Fiume. On September 12th, 
he and 2,000 armed Italians arrived in Fium on army vehicles which D'Annunzio was allowed to use for the buccaneering expedition. He was stopped on the way by Italian infantry, who had strict orders to halt the advance on the city. D'Annunzio presented the troops with his chest, adorned with medals from the Great War. If the troops wished to fire, he told them they should aim there. The Italian commander lost his nerve, shook D'Annunzio's hand, and cried, quote, Long live Italian Fium, unquote. Upon entering, D'Annunzio proclaimed the regency of Carnaro, and a sad spectacle of what Italy was to become under Mussolini was played out in miniature. For fifteen months, Slavic, German, and Italian inhabitants of Fium had to put up with a foreign enemy dictatorship. In one instance, troops opened fire on children when they refused to salute the Italian flag. After a battle which resulted in the deaths of dozens, the new-slash-old premier, Giolitti, ended the Fiume experiment for good, but it had inspired thousands of Italians to commit acts of violence. Amongst them was Benito Mussolini. He began to arm his fascist groups and separate them into quote-unquote hit squads or squadristi. They started small with petty assault and battery, but they quickly worked their way up to destruction of property, and in late November of 1920, they would escalate all the way to murder. In Bologna, 200 armed fascists met to confront a socialist congregation of workers and their representatives. Recently in the local elections, socialism had swept the countryside, making it more popular but also more hated and feared. When the red flag of socialism was raised at the town hall, fascists began lobbing grenades and firing pistols into the socialist ranks. The confusion began a stampede, and following the shooting of a fascist councilman by police, the fascist would claim this murderous attack was an act of quote-unquote self-defense. Giolitti attempted the same hands-off policy he used in strikes, and was met with disastrous results. This emboldened the fascists, who claimed more than 3,000 socialist lives over the course of the next three years. To counter, Giolitti attempted an early form of appeasement. He included fascist candidates on his election lists. He hoped that, once elected, fascist politicians would turn down their violent rhetoric and be easily assimilated into parliamentary life. Fascists had no philosophical issue serving in the ruling government like the socialists did, so they found an easy in. Socialism was busy cleaving itself once more. Following the communist revolution in Russia, a powerful communist contingent of Italian socialism emerged. By 1920, these communists would form their own party under Antonio Gramsci. This meant that the left in Italy was a hopelessly divided mess, as fascism quickly rose in popularity amongst disillusioned, desensitized Italians. Fascism was proving incredibly popular amongst all ranks of society, but one place in which it experienced unprecedented popularity was amongst the youth. In both Italy and Germany, the youth was instrumental in bringing about the violent overthrow of the inherent order. In Italy, the average fascist squadristi was fewer than 20 years old. 
Their campaign of terror against anything they considered left-wing was brutal and vulgar. A favorite tactic of fascist hit squads was to force their opponents to drink castor oil. This would induce diarrhea, which led to the joke that their opponents were being, quote, purged of their leftist faults, unquote. In 1921, the elections saw serious gains for fascists, and they won 35 seats in Parliament. Meanwhile, the socialists had lost ground, and the Popolare were on a steady ascent. Giolitti hoped these fascists would back him against socialism, but his hopes were dashed, as they proved obstinate toward government cooperation. In this period of virtual civil war, socialists began to attack fascists. These attacks became rallying cries to increase violence against socialists. While this violence was horrifying and inexcusable, Dennis Mack Smith says, quote, It was not so systemic, nor was it deliberate policy. The fascists were better organized, better armed, and had far more money, unquote. Smith continues, quote, Since the liberals refused to govern effectively, and as the Socialist Party was a slave to dogma, fascism had to cope only with local trade unions and cooperatives. Without leadership and organization, these were helpless, and the left was expelled forcibly and piecemeal from hundreds of municipal councils and chambers of labor. Unquote. Following the resignation of Giolitti, his government gave way to the former socialist Ivano Bonomi. He endeavored to begin an expensive, quote-unquote, reconquest of Libya. He hoped this new military mission would help relieve pressure on the home front and bring about some form of national unity. He even attempted to forge an alliance between the fascists and the socialists. This failed, but it had some initial support from the opportunist Mussolini. This alliance could never realistically happen, especially with fascist deputies openly assaulting communists in the halls of parliament. Following a socialist party denunciation, Benomi's majority collapsed, and he resigned. Luigi Facta became premier after him, and he continued an ineffectual policy of appeasement. Fascist squads drove around with police, openly fraternizing with the defenders of law and order on a mission to destroy law and order. In the courts, the grenade throwers and murderers of Bologna were allowed to walk free. In lockstep with growing fascist sympathies in government, fascist trade unions, athletic societies, and newspapers were growing in popularity at an alarming rate. The socialists offered ineffectual resistance. In July 1922, Turati called for the workers to launch a general strike in order to save the country from despotism. This strike played right into the hands of the fascists, as they could now scab in the place of the workers on strike, while intermingling with industrialists, who would end up giving a great deal of funds to the fascist party coffers. This inflamed the left still further, and more strikes sprang up. As August began, it seemed the country was on the verge of disintegration. Thousands of armed fascists rampaged through the major cities of Genoa, Milan, and Ancona, looking for striking workers or anyone who was deemed to have leftist sympathies. They were aided in their terror campaign by the Italian army and police at almost every step. 
only in Parma were army units committed to enforcing the law equally. They forced a group of armed fascists who were operating under Italo Balbo to give way. Mussolini saw his moment coming. The power he had long wished to yield was within his grasp. One fascist said, quote, Either the state will absorb fascism, injecting fresh lifeblood into its vital organs, or fascism will replace the state. Any solution imposed on by parliament against us would be an act of concrete violence at the expense of the wishes of the country. Unquote. Fascism was now so powerful that it was a state within a state. Politicians, lawmakers, and senators had to grovel at the feet of the local Raz, or fascist leader. In several instances, Facta's government was found pleading with fascists to mitigate the violence they routinely perpetrated. All this time, the king sat on his hands and would not involve the royal house in discussions for or against fascism. The Duke of Aosta, meanwhile, was an early fascist sympathizer, and he had a direct line to upper-party leadership. Dennis Mack Smith contends that the king may have been afraid that Aosta would usurp him and carry the mantle of fascism more zealously. However, it's undeniable that if the king had decided to act at any moment in these past three years, it may have averted or at least somewhat thwarted the catastrophe fascist rule was for Italy. Unfortunately, the king always let the strong man take over. Facta tried one last desperate ploy. He reached out to D'Annunzio to call for an end to the violence. This would have been a serious issue for Mussolini had it ended in a ceasefire, but unfortunately, D'Annunzio was indisposed. Christopher Duggan says he, quote, fell from a window of his villa on the evening of 13 August and was seriously hurt. He appears to have lost his balance while high on cocaine and fondling the sister of his mistress, unquote. Real classy. On October 26, 1922, the Fascist Congress of Naples declared a revolution. The next day, hordes of fascists began congregating in major cities. Hundreds of thousands were meant to march on Rome, but the bitter rain and uncertainty at the government's reaction was an inhibitor. Only a paltry 16,000 arrived at the Eternal City. They were demanding that Mussolini be made premier by royal decree or else. Facta met with the general who was in charge of the garrison of Rome, as well as several other key officials. He was prepared to issue the orders for martial law and the arrests of all fascists in the area. The king agreed and the orders were sent out. The next day, Facta went to the king to get his official signature. However, for some reason, the king had a change of heart. He did not wish to sign the order anymore. Supposedly, he met with General Diaz and asked about the loyalty of his troops in the event of civil war. Dennis Mack Smith says Diaz responded, quote, The army would do its duty, but it better not be put to the test. Unquote. Years later, the king claimed this supposed meeting never occurred. Whatever happened, King Vittorio Emmanuel allowed this small, seemingly insignificant revolt to succeed. Why did the king change his mind? 
Why did he go against every single government minister he had on hand? Why did he go against his top generals who advocated to a man for arresting the ringleaders? The answers to these questions are lost to history or kept under safe lock and key in Turin. Factor resigned at 11.30 a.m., and a special telegram was sent to Mussolini, asking him to support a government headed by the conservative warmonger Salandra. Mussolini went all in. He wrote in his paper, quote, The victory must not be mutilated. The government must be unequivocally fascist. Unquote. The king folded, sent a special train car to pick up Mussolini, and opened the gates of Rome to a new set of barbarians. 25,000 unarmed, dirty fascists greeted the new duce of all Italians, with arms outstretched in a Roman salute. Mussolini had won. All sides submitted to him, and any opposition he encountered he endeavored to crush with a clenched fist. As fascist rule swept over Italy like the plague, few voices cried out in outrage. In fact, most sectors of Italian life greeted the new fascist leadership with glee. For the few who resisted fascist hegemony, life was about to become increasingly more difficult. Their voices would be throttled, their lives stomped out, and their existence erased from history. Mussolini would lead Italy into a new war, which proved even more devastating for everyday Italians, and he would see his quote-unquote new Rome collapse like pillars of sand. To hear about Mussolini's early reign, what fascist government and ideology was like, and Italy's attempts to subjugate and colonize the Libyan and Ethiopian people, you'll have to tune in to the next episode of Turning Tides. The Eagle, the Lion, the Fox. I'm your host, Joseph Pascone. I would ask you all if you'd like to hear a fascist joke, but you've heard a bit about Mussolini already. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out our YouTube page, where we'll be posting extra content soon. If you like what you heard today, you can support us by donating on PayPal at Turning Tides Podcast One. Thanks for the support and thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, we'd really appreciate it if you take the time to rate and review Turning Tides on whatever platform you use to listen and share the show on social media. It really helps us to bring the show to more listeners. Thank you guys so much. Thank you to everyone for listening. We'd also like to say thank you to Movo Photo. We use their sound equipment for this podcast, as well as all of our other projects at Antics Entertainment. They make great equipment at great prices, and we really appreciate that they make content creating so accessible for indie creators like us. Check them out on social media at Movo Photo, M-O-V-O-P-H-O-T-O. Thank you again.